Hi everyone, and welcome to this podcast series on low carbohydrate diets and diabetes. My name is Jan Orford, and I'll once again be your host. Today's podcast is the second in a series of three discussing the impact of low carbohydrate diet on people with diabetes. We'll discuss the benefits, disadvantages, current research, and dietary guidelines for macronutrient carbohydrate. I'd like to once again introduce Amy Rush, who is the 2018 CDE of the Year in in Western Australia and the Jan Baldwin CDE of the Year. Amy's passion for supporting people with type 1 diabetes began when her brother was diagnosed with diabetes at the age of seven. She wanted him to live the richest life possible and she continues to wish this for all her patients today. Amy understands the confusion, fear and loneliness of nighttime diabetes management and created the Diabetes Detective Program, which allows her to provide diabetes patients with feedback in real time using CGM. Patients share their data with Amy for a week and she offers them advice and solutions 24-7. Amy believes this is just one way technology can help take diabetes management to the next level. Amy is an accredited practicing dietitian and credentialed diabetes educator. In her spare time, she creates rap song parodies with lyrics about type one. Her latest rap, The Real T1D, was a parody of Eminem's song, The Real Slim Shady, and it went viral. So hello, Amy, once again, and uh, how are you today? Very good, thank you, Jan, yourself? Good, good, very well, thank you. Thank you for coming back for this second episode in our three-part series. And during our last podcast, Amy and I had a wonderful conversation about low-carbohydrate diets. Today, we'll be discussing the macronutrient needs with low-carbohydrate diets. So I guess my first question then is, how do you determine macronutrient distribution? Or more simply put, your recommendation for carbohydrate, protein and fat? So as we discussed in the first podcast of the series, this is something that will really be determined by the individual and their reasoning for adopting a low carbohydrate diet in the first place. When someone comes to see me for help transitioning, there's a series of steps that we will chat through and this will give me and give us a guide to the kind of macronutrient targets that we should be aiming for in their diet. Um, Thanks, Amy. When someone comes to you to help transition to a low-carb diet, you teach them via a series of steps, as I understand. Could you please talk us through those steps, please? For sure. So first off, we need to discuss the person's goals. Specialising in type 1 diabetes, the majority of my patients are looking for better blood glucose control. They want more stable blood glucose levels, a way to control their levels more easily and a way to avoid the post-meal hyperglycemia, which is often followed by insulin-induced hypoglycemia. Some of them want or need weight loss as an added bonus. I also need to know more about their anthropometrics, their activity levels, so I can work out an overall energy intake that will meet their needs and their goals. Then we can start talking carbohydrate. So I like to get a feel for their current carbohydrate intake, how much they eat, how often they're eating it, and if there's any particular kinds of or times of the day where they're craving carbohydrate-based foods, any particular foods that they think 
that they really can't live without in terms of carbohydrates in terms of carbohydrates so discussing the current diet it also gives me the opportunity to assess their carb knowledge do they know which foods contain carbohydrate and what are their carb uh, counting skills like so we may need to actually take a big step back in some situations and spend time working on those aspects then with all that in mind i'll chat to them about their idea of a low carbohydrate approach so some patients will come to me, they've done all their research, they've decided 100% they'd like to target, say, for example, a low or a very low or a keto carbohydrate kind of diet, or they might pull a number out of the air and say, this is what I want to aim for. If they have that, we will discuss it and we can go from there. If not, we'll discuss all the different levels of carbohydrate intake and we'll look at them all in terms of their, um, their ultimate goals. So it's important for them to realise that also this isn't set in stone. So they may start out currently eating 300 grams of carbs per day and we might reduce that by half to 150, which is really quite easy for someone to do. Then we'll assess the blood glucose benefit that they've got from that, the ease in which they were able to incorporate the change and then perhaps they might decide that they want to reduce further or they might say, look, I'm really happy here, I've got great results, I'm going to stay around here and, and happy days. So at what point do you actually discuss insulin with them? That's a really good question. And the answer is from the outset. So we know that bolus and meal, or meal insulin requirements are obviously going to decrease straight away with a, carbohydrate, a decreased carbohydrate intake. It seems very obvious to us, um, but it can be strange to a patient who is so used to bolusing such large amounts of rapid acting insulin at meals and they start thinking, wow, really, is that all I need to, I need to give? So that's, it's really important to start talking about this from the start. Uh, the person's current insulin regimen uh, is really important to look at. So, for example, if there's someone who is on set meal dosages, again, we need to take a really big step back and look a lot more at their carbohydrate counting ability. Do they know where carbs are and can they count carbs? How do they count carbs? Whereas someone with on a pump or someone using flexible NDI who's more equipped at carbohydrate counting and using ratios, they will catch on a lot more quickly. It's also really important to talk to them about their long-term insulin changes. So if the diet is going to bring about some weight loss, then overall insulin needs are really likely going to decrease. Alterations to basal rates, carb ratios, sensitivity factors, these will all generally start to um, decrease over the coming months. It's not immediate. I tend to see that in clinic where it's not an immediate effect on basal needs, but it happens fairly quickly. It's really depends on um, their rate of weight loss and, and how much they've reduced their carbohydrate intake. So we do need to discuss that, that that is potentially going to happen. Then depending on the level of protein intake, people following a low carb diet will often need to start bolusing for protein as well if they're eating a high protein, low carb meal. And all this combined really highlights the importance of not doing low carb on your own. That's something that I really do harp on about, that you really do need help from a healthcare professional who's well versed in the area of low carbohydrate dietary management for those using insulin, so insulin dependent diabetes, or those on medic um, oral medication. Okay, Amy, I, I understand most of your patients have type 1 diabetes, so I'm wondering if you were working with someone with type 2 to diabetes who was overweight, would you anticipate they might lose weight on this regimen? 
And if so, would you expect their insulin sensitivity to change at all? Yeah, I would say yes on both accounts. The weight loss would occur for a number of reasons. Firstly, overall calorie reduction. In reducing the carb in the diet, we are removing the processed and packaged foods. And these are calorie dense and nutrient poor. And straight away, this will reduce overall calorie intake. Second is what we add back in. So when we reduce the carbohydrate in the diet, we are forced to assess the diet and work out exactly what we need to put back in to provide nutrient requirements. And we can tailor this to the person's overall energy needs and promote weight loss if need be. And we do this by creating an energy deficit. The third thing would be a person reduces their carbohydrate, they will require less oral diabetes medication or insulin. So we will need to titrate the medication or insulin downwards. We know insulin is an anabolic, anabolic hormone. It promotes glucose and fatty acid storage. So a reduction in insulin requirements will itself further promote weight loss. And this is why blood glucose monitoring is of utmost importance when adopting a lower carbohydrate approach. Medication requirements will need to be titrated based on blood glucose levels. So it's really important to have a healthcare team on board. In regards to insulin sensitivity, as a person loses weight, we see improvements in glycemic control and we're ultimately forced to lower oral diabetes medication or, insu or insulin. And there's some really good evidence to support this out there. A 2015 randomised control trial compared a low-carb, high unsaturated fat and low saturated fat versus a high-carb diet, low in fat, using low GI carbs. The participants all had type 2 diabetes and they were followed up for a year. Both groups had similar weight loss, 9.8 kilograms and 10.1 kilogram average weight loss respectively. However, the low carbohydrate diet group had greater improvements in terms of lipid profile, blood glucose stability, and reductions in diabetes medication requirements. The improved glucose stability and the reduced requirement for medication really highlights the impact of low carbohydrate diets and weight loss on insulin sensitivity. Then there is also a 2017 systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials and they pulled the results from nine studies with 734 patients with type 2 diabetes. The results indicated that a low-carb diet had a beneficial effect on HbA1c, and the researchers suggested this finding might be attributed to improvements in glucose metabolism and insulin sensitivity. And they also noted that the low-carbohydrate diet produced a greater reduction in insulin dose and that the reduction of insulin might further promote weight loss which we know would then further impact insulin sensitivity. Fair enough. So let's get getting back to the steps that you go through with, with patients. What is the next step then? Step two, that would be protein. We talked about protein a little bit in the last podcast and why it's important. But once we have the carbohydrate intake and the overall energy requirement um, set, then we can start to look at a person's protein requirements. And the RDIs set for protein, as I mentioned before, are based on age and weight. And I'll assess each patient individually, of course. So there's no defined upper limit set for protein. And that's just because there's just a lack of, of data around that. But the NHMRC does have guidelines that recommend an upper limit of protein at about 25% of energy. So we need to look at that 
for starters. The second thing we need to look at is it's important to consider the patient's preferences. So for example, do they have taste preferences? What are their physical activity goals? Are there any cultural or ethical beliefs that may impact their protein intake? That's a really big one. The other clinical aspects that need to be considered would be, for example, someone with type 1 diabetes. So in my area of expertise, um, I'm really aware of that the impact of protein can really affect someone's blood glucose level, levels if it's consumed in quite large amounts at a meal. So it would be really counterproductive to put someone on a type uh, with type 1 on a high-protein, low-carbohydrate diet as the protein is going to impact the blood glucose and be difficult to to um, bolus for with insulin. So this is why the low carbohydrate approach for people with diet with type one diabetes will emphasize low carbohydrate, adequate protein and more higher fat intakes. So what I'll do is I'll look at the RDI, I'll look at the upper limit based on their energy requirements and I'll take all these other factors into account and that helps me determine the protein intake. Of course, there's discussion around consuming a different variety of protein sources at each meal because our different um, protein sources will contain other micronutrients and we want to get a big variety of those. Um, and we'll also talk about handy protein-based snacks as well. Great. Thanks, Amy. And, and I guess now for the final micronutrient, fat. Would you like to tell us more about that? Yes, fat. Fat is my favourite of the macronutrients and it kind of rounds out the rest of the diet. So once I've determined the percentage of total energy requirement fulfilled by the carbohydrate and the protein, then we can determine the total grams of fat that the person should be aiming for to meet their energy needs. And it's actually an area that we spend a lot of time on. Most people are still really scared of that word fat. It doesn't matter how much research they've done in the low carb diet, that will still come in here, particularly if you're a child of the, I think, 70s and 80s. Um, we have a real fear of fat. And the most co common question that I'll get here is, won't adding fat mean that I'm going to gain weight? Won't I get fat? And so we really need to talk about the idea that carbohydrates are no longer available in the body and as an energy as an energy source to be used. And so the body is now going to be burning that dietary fat as a fuel. Of course, excess energy of any sort will lead to weight gain, but we're tailoring the diet to meet their energy needs based on their weight and their weight goals. That sounds reasonable. But and I guess the other question then is, are all fats created equal? When it comes to fat, I think people are really concerned about excessive intake of saturated fats and the implications of heart health. And we are going to touch more on this in the next podcast. But what's important and what I would say now is that recent research in the area, is it's really interesting and it's highlighting that saturated fat really isn't the bad guy that it was made out to be. Still, when it comes to fats, we will talk about the importance of variety. And this is this goes for any of the macronutrients. Like with protein and essential amino acids, we need to get all our essential fatty acids and we can only do that by eating a variety of fats. So we will discuss, obviously, where fats come from, what the appropriate serving sizes are for fats, because they are much more calorie dense than our protein and our carbs. And then we'll work out how we can ensure that we get a variety of fat in the diet. Thanks, Amy. Now, you mentioned using fat as fuel. Does this have anything to do with ketones? And if so, is this dangerous for somebody with diabetes? So this is the next step kind of in the fat fear, I think. So the first thing is the saturated fat concerns that people have and then the 
the whole link of fat and ketones and using ketones as an energy source. So when you're burning fat as an energy source, you will produce ketone bodies and these will be used as a fuel. What's important to understand is that having measurable ketones in this instance is not the same as having measurable ketones relating to diabetic ketoacidosis. So if we look first at diabetic ketoacidosis, we know this is a state of insufficient insulin. The body can't access the glucose, so it starts to break down body fat and produces ketones for energy. As long as there is insufficient insulin and there's no negative feedback on ketone production, those ketones will start to accumulate. They won't be used as fast as they're being made. So the blood glucose levels in this situation are generally elevated ketones are elevated and the person will be symptomatic with those common symptoms we know of diabetic ketoacidosis. As I mentioned before, as dietary carbohydrate intake decreases, the body adapts to use fat for fuel and ketones become that usable energy source. This is actually a normal and acceptable metabolic state, often referred to as nutritional ketosis. So this is in a situation of adequate insulin. The ketones in the body are coming from the breakdown of dietary fat. They may be coming from the breakdown of body fat if someone's reducing their overall energy intake, but majority from the dietary fat. They're not a symptom of inadequate insulin. In a person without diabetes, insulin secretion just decreases on a low-carb diet. And in a person with diabetes, exogenous or our injected insulin requirement decreases in type 2 medications and in type 1, the bolus and often the basal insulin. But what is important to remember is that insulin is still required and medication and insulin is still dosed in appropriate amounts for any carbohydrate intake and quite often protein intake. So to explain nutritional ketosis in someone with diabetes, the person is in an insulin sufficient state. Ketones are controlled and they're not excessive. Blood glucose will be within range and they don't have any of those common symptoms of diabetic ketoacidosis. Thanks. I hope that. that explains the difference. <laughs> I think so. I think it, it, it certainly made it clearer in my head. So what, what are the national guidelines or recommendations for macronutrients for people in general and people with diabetes? Well, the Australian Dietary Guidelines and the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating are used for the general population as well as people with diabetes. Rather than specific macronutrient recommendations, the guidelines look at recommended servings from the varied food groups and each gender and age group uh, within those genders has different recommendations and that's based on their growth and their activity and other things. So if you were to look at the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating plate image, it suggests a third of the diet be made up by bread, cereals and grains and a third from vegetable sources and then the remaining third is divided evenly between meat, poultry, seafood and vegetable proteins, your dairy foods and fruits. It's important to remember that there is no one size diet that fits all. So this is for people with or without diabetes. The nutrient requirements will differ from person to person and the reasons for the differences are numerous. So before anyone looks at implementing any diet, what I think is most important and well, it's well worth is chatting to a dietitian about what your health goals are and what your energy and macronutrient intakes are personally and how you can use these to meet those goals. Well, thank you so much, Amy. It really has been fascinating to talk to you once again. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. And thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. 
If you've any questions, please feel free to email them to education at adea.com.au and we will endeavour to get back to you with responses. And if you haven't already done so, please feel free to check out Amy Rush's rap video parodies on YouTube. They are really very good. So until next time, goodbye. Thank you.